man, I keep thinking, Las Vegas would be such a good place for a superhero fight. Oh man, I know, right? It's like all bright lights and saturated color and like really smashable landmarks. I'm surprised the X-Men haven't made it out this way. Well, they swing by occasionally. I mean, they fought the Hulk here once, like way back in the Silver Age, and Wolverine passes through now and again in solo titles. Wolverine? I'd have expected Gambit. Hey, hey, dude, Ultimate Gambit died in Vegas. Show some respect, man. Oh, what happened? Eh, you know, the usual. Ill-advised but daring casino heists and the Strucker twins and Juggernaut. Ouch. Yeah. So since then, most of the Vegas stories in the X-Books have involved Hella, who actually set up camp here and ran a casino for a while. Wait, like the Asgardian Hella? Oh, yeah. Now, back in Dark Reign, actually, uh, Daniel Moonstar Mirage came here to meet with Hella and get her Valkyrie powers back. How'd that work out? Yeah, took down Ares in the Battle of Utopia. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. But the modern team who's actually spent the most time in Vegas is X-Factor Investigations. I thought they were based out of New York. Well, sure, but again, that's where Hella comes in. See, they accidentally led her to Pip the Troll. Pip the Troll? That weird little dude who used to run with Adam Warlock and lived in the Soul Gem for a while? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, so anyway, X-Factor got hired to track him down, but they didn't realize until later that their client was actually Hella, and then they felt so bad they decided they were going to go rescue Pip. How'd it go? Well, you know, they fought a bunch of undead Vikings. Uh, that seems reasonable under the circumstances. Oh, and Jamie Madrox and Layla Miller got married. Oh, well, we all knew that was coming. And Darwin became an immortal death god. What?! <laughs> All right, I am J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 83 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. Okay, so we are here, for those of you listening at home in the future, time travelers or just people who didn't show up uh, at the show, we are at a... Or both, or time travelers who are skipping the show, but now can come back and attend it. This is getting complicated. Right? Well, anyway, we are in Las Vegas at the Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival, which is great. So, audience, thank you guys all for showing up. Yes. Um. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank this you. is our second ever live con episode, and this time we're going to try to do something we've never done before, which is a continuity episode. But, you know, I was thinking, this has really been a banner week in X-Men. Uh, yeah, we had uh, Brian Bendis' run with the long-delayed Uncanny X-Men 600. We have the new era of X-Men starting with Jeff Lemire's Extraordinary X-Men. So we're going to actually ignore all of that. Um, and instead, we are going to talk about an obscure annual from 1979 featuring Marvel's favorite generic space barbarian. And we actually love this annual because it covers, if you've not heard the show, it covers so many of our favorite points. Um, like, it it's, does. it's a really good encapsulation of what we dig about X-Men. Yeah, uh, specifically what we dig about Chris Claremont's X-Men. Chris Claremont, for those who might be unfamiliar, wrote X-Men for like 1,000 years. Uh, The X-Men as we know him, that's all him. That's all him uh, from his run that started right after Giant Size X-Men number one. I think actually 17 years. He was was the primary architect of the X-Universe. Potato, potato. And so yes, this has a lot of glorious Claremont-isms in terms of plot, in terms of dialogue. I think the only main thing it doesn't have is Storm getting naked for no reason, but you know, you, all, well, you can she, look at she any does, other. She does randomly change outfits for no reason, so that's something. And it's got a lot of really good Cyclops stuff, and like, so this is good territory for us. Um, it's got art by not the standard artist this time. It's uh, George Perez and Terry Austin, who is the standard inker. I think he inked over Cockrum, usually. Uh, yeah, Terry Austin does some of the best X-Men inks. Everyone forgets about inkers, but they're rad, and we should all respect them. Shout out to inkers. You guys yeah. are awesome. So uh, this is a ways back 
before where we actually are in the show in continuity. What was happening with the X-Men in 1979? Taking it back to 1979. So this takes place between Uncanny X-Men, or actually just X-Men at this point, 124 and 125. As we are informed repeatedly in like increasingly crabby footnotes, which is, I love the footnotes in this issue so much, like, because they're all really cranky. They are. Um, (laughs) And so uh, the stuff that was happening at this point in history, the X-Men were still relatively new after forming up the the all-new, all-different team with like Mm -hmm. Storm and Colossus and Wolverine. They had been separated from Jean Grey, who was currently Phoenix, sort of, long story. Yeah, she's she's standard Phoenix, not dark Phoenix at this point. Right, Uh, and Beast when they fought Magneto. So this group of X-Men, they think that Jean and Beast are dead. Professor Xavier was so depressed that he went off to space with his space bird empress girlfriend, Lalandra, so he's not there either. He didn't actually fake his own death this time, though, so this is a step up for Professor Xavier. Yes, Uh, so who are the current X-Men at this point? Okay, we've got Cyclops, Storm... Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Banshee. And Banshee's sort of on reserve because he actually burned out his powers fighting Moses Magnum and a bunch of mandrels. Moses Magnum, P.I., presumably. He's not, no. We just call him that. I think he is. We should. He can be. Um, And Banshee, he has, has, however, retained his secondary power set, which is being able to hella rock um, really impressive sideburns and bulky turtlenecks. Banshee is one of the sexiest Marvel Universe characters ever. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, and man, yet Perez draws him so well. Like, I, I wrote that, like, three times in my notes that I, I love the way Perez draws Banshee. Totally. So this is X-Men Annual number three that we're going to be covering, or I think, like, king-size X-Men number three. They were naming them weird back in the day. Effectively, it's an annual, which means a couple of things. It's a double size issue, and it's, while it takes place in the timeline of continuity, it's sort of outside the X-Men standard adventures. A lot of the annuals, especially during this era, are like standalone cosmic universe hopping stuff, and this is one of those. Absolutely. So uh, I vote we dive into X-Men annual number three, featuring everyone's favorite partially clothed science fiction lightning dude, Archon. Archon the Magnificent. Archon the Ma- he is magnificent. He really is. And he also has magnificent tiny fur panties. Uh, yeah, he's kind of like any given Masters of the Universe character. I didn't realize until totally I was does. much older that a lot of those action figures, they all have the same kind of like fur underwear groin. Like they're all well, sharing one groin. You can use groin. the same mold and just paint them with different colors. I, I just started thinking about the implications of this. Like what does this mean for reproductive health and in Eternia? I, I feel know. like there's got to be a lot of sort of vague in- inbreeding. It's possible, yeah. Sorry, um, this got dark fast. Well, anyway, uh, furry <laughs> underwear aside for the moment... Uh, so a lot of the time, X-Men in this era would open with what we refer to as a danger room open or a danger room cold open. The danger room is where the X-Men go to fight each other and robots and wall-mounted lasers. And it's a great place for Chris Claremont and whoever's drawing to give you a real quick introduction to the team and their powers. We don't open there quite yet here. We get a different kind of cold open. We get a thing crashing down from space open. Uh, yeah, specifically, we get a newspaper stand open. And I love this because it features one of our favorite uh, Claremontisms, which is a couple of random like bystanders. I think of them as NPCs because I play too many video games and role-playing <laughs> games who are just sort of like there briefly to say a couple lines, but they like have names and little personality traits and then you never see them again. They're, and they always look like they're going to become like players in the story and they never actually are. And it always, right. it's like the guy at the beginning of Moby Dick who's the protagonist for five pages and then falls off a dock. Oh, man, that His name I can't remember. But, you know, um, uh, our our yeah. favorites, of course, are Harvey and Janet, the greatest Hellfire Club guards of all time. These are not it's them. true. Harvey and Janet forever. These are Isidore and Ermagerd Human? Uman? U-H-M-A-N. Yeah, and they see this space barbarian Archon just teleport out of nowhere. And I got to say it. So Ermagerd Uman. So Ermagerd Urkern. I can't I can't avoid the it's, meme. It's, you, yeah, you can't it's, do it's it. very mumbly. Um, um, so... Archon flashes down in a bolt, and, and they recognize him, or at least recognize his general ilk, being as how they are news vendors, and also as how they live in Marvel, New York, where things crash down from space, like, weekly. 
But what I really love about them is the way they're describing everything. Like, before Archon shows up, they're talking about how nothing interesting ever happens and how if you want something interesting, you should look into the comical books. And then when Archon shows up, they, should, they say that you should call the Fantastical Four. Like, I really want them to just narrate everybody, uh, every scene in the Marvel Universe from now on, just adding on unnecessary ickle to the end yeah, of everything. Yeah, kind of all of our grandparents. So let's talk about Archon. Who is this dude, aside from, like, a man who crashes down from space in furry underwear? I mean, that's all I would need personally, but I suppose we can talk a little bit more about him. So, okay, Archon's look. Archon does have the furry underwear. He also has this sweet hat. It's like this skull cap with a big V thing on it. Um, he's got a quiver of lightning bolts and a giant shield, and he's super imperious, which is appropriate because he is an Empyrean. Um, on the warlike planet Polemicus, and we looked this up, we assumed it had to be a reference to something, but all we could find is that it's a random dude who says a couple things in Plato's Republic. Yeah, so, he talks to Socrates, and Socrates makes know. him look dumb, because that's what Socrates does. Yeah, Socrates um, is kind of a dick. Yeah, so uh, Archon we've seen before in the Marvel Universe in like some Avengers stuff. Archon, like Socrates, is kind of a dick. Uh, true, a different, <laughs> different kind of dick. V very, kind of? very dick types. Remember but, the time that Socrates tried to blow up the Earth to power the Ring of Light around his planet? Well, that's something that Archon did. So, uh, And Polemicus, Polemicus is a planet that's surrounded. It doesn't have a sun. It's got this big sort of ring of fire energy stuff around it. It's like if Don't Saturn's... think too hard about this. It doesn't actually work. I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Tony Stark could make it make sense to us. But um, no. their their ring of no. light uh, stopped working at one point, which is unfortunate because then they would all freeze to death and die. And so they're like, okay, how do we fix this? Um, we could, you know, turn to technology. We could think about how global warming was impacted by man-made things. Or we could blow up the Earth. Or we could find the Earth <laughs> in another dimension and blow it up with atomic energy which science something, science something would fix everything. The Avengers stopped him, and they felt bad for the people of Flemicus, so Iron Man made a gizmo, which Thor then powered with lightning, that kept the ring going. Almost all of Archon's storylines in the Marvel Universe involve the machine screwing up and him having to come and find some way to jumpstart it, either by getting atomic bombs or kidnapping Thor or whatever. It's basically the same storyline over and over again. Polemicus is a really awful planet. Like it, I feel like they should just move after the third or fourth time. Yeah. But no, no, they are, they are pretty dedicated. Well, wait, wait, wait. You're forgetting about my favorite Archon appearance, which is where at one oh. point he interacts with Amora the Enchantress yeah. sometimes, the Thor villain. And at one point she manipulates him into coming to Earth where Wonder Man has been filming a movie about Archon and has been playing Archon like Wonder Man has. And so Archon comes and tries to beat the heck out of Wonder Man for daring to portray him cinematically, which I love. Uh, most recently, Archon is the main character of the Weird World series written by Jason Aaron. It's one of the Secret Wars books, and I think is it, it's extending out. Uh, they're going to have like an ongoing Weird World as well. But yeah, it's art okay. by Mike Del Mundo. Check it out. It's great. Um, Archon tries to headbutt his way out of a prison, and it's amazing. Yeah, um, so that sounds about in character. So Archon is here this time to see the Avengers. He has urgent, urgent business with them. Um, and he heads to Avengers Mansion to imperiously interrupt Jarvis. And this is, man, this is one of my favorite weird notes. So Claremont drops a lot of pop culture references and, and a lot of era-specific cultural grounding. And here we learn that Jarvis goes out to pick up the paper because he is eagerly anticipating the comic strip Funky Winker Bean. And I want to talk about this because this is freaking me out. Because first of all, no one eagerly anticipates Funky Winker Bean. It's like the comic strip that is the punishment for looking for reading the comics you actually like. Well, no, it's, it's just, it's so impressively depressing. I feel it's like he so appreciates the, the pathos. It's like the Jude the Obscure of the comics page. That your Jude the Obscure reference was referenced the Obscure. I right? approve. No, but so, okay, Jude the Obscure is it, any Thomas Hardy novel. Thomas Hardy novels are all about just horrible things happening to people for really long periods of time and, and life being meaningless and miserable, which is also exactly what Funky Winkerbean is about. There's actually, Comics Alliance does Funky Watch, which is a, a rundown of the most depressing Funky Winkerbean strips in, every, in any given month. 
Um, but yeah. Come for the X-Men, stay for the tangents. We're, what we're here blew for my you. mind actually here was the discovery that um, it was around and in the comics pages in 1979, which means that we have never lived in a world without Funky Winker Bean. And I never want to. <laughs> really? Uh, well, you know, it, it's, it's a comforting nihilism. I guess. But we digress. So, Archon uh, <laughs> comes up to Jarvis and says, hey, I need to talk to Thor. And Jarvis is like, he's, he's not, not here. That, he's not actually that polite about it. No, he's like, I must talk to Thor. I'll shove a lightning bolt in your face. And uh, he almost does shove a lightning bolt in Jarvis's face before a giant floating head's like, hey, Archon, there's another option. You don't need to lightning bolt that dude's face. Go over this way. And Archon says, fine. Next time, lightning bolt face. Man, and he should... Jarvis is so long-suffering. He really he identifies with Funky Winkerbean. That's what I'm but, saying. Um, no, but specifically, this bearded spectral head directs Archon to Storm, and that brings us, of course, to the stars of the show, the X-Men, and here, ah, here finally is our Danger Room Open. Yeah, you have to do this, and Danger Room Opens are awesome, because you, you get to see each character's powers, you get to see, you know, sort of how their personalities bounce off of each other. And you get to see Charles Xavier's utter disregard for safety. Yeah, now Xavier's not here, he's in space. Yeah, but, but it's his house, it's his, it's his machine. Yes, the room he put together, uh, what will later be retconned from an artificial intelligence, again, long story, it's full of, you know, spinning blades and oil slicks and wind that will hold you in place and pounders <laughs> that will pound you. And, and its you know, safeties are terrible. And this issue also has something that's common to a lot of annuals, which is chapter titles. This one being A Rogue in the House, which we noticed because it is the title of like seven different Claremont X-Men stories. You know, if it's good, why fix what's and not broken? And also Dazzler 24, but that's Denny Fingeroth, but I'm still going to count it because it's the same era. That's legit. And so anyway, the X-Men are doing their uh, training thing. And the thing about getting little bits of personality, we definitely see that here, like this part with um, Cyclops and Colossus. And Cyclops is basically hanging in the background here, sort of encouraging and giving advice, but he's, he's not ordering the X-Men. He's trying to get them to solve problems on their own. This is still not an entirely new team, but it's still a team that's kind of trying to work out their dynamics relative to one another. So you get, you know... Yeah. Oh, am I going to be... Uh, okay, I'll be last. I think... I know how to fight, Cyclops. You well, can insert your own Russian accent. I'm you know how try. to smash. If I wanted that in an X-Man, I'd have hired the Hulk. It's like, oh man, sick burn, Cyclops. I don't know. See, I read that really differently. I think you read it as sarcastic. I read it as, as more matter-of-fact. And this is actually... This is a much mellower and generally better-adjusted Cyclops than we usually see. Like, he's still got his tangle of issues and a currently... Uh, apparently dead Gene thing going Gene's on. Gene's only died once but for like, him, so he's not super traumatized so far, yet. But, you know, he's, he, he kind of just owns that stuff and then just goes and does his job. He totally gets MVP this issue, which I appreciate. I, I think he absolutely he does. doesn't get a lot of that in this era. Um, now, the, the training's going relatively well until... Storm gets caught in this sort of wind trap between two fans, and this somehow triggers her claustrophobia. I'm not sure how that works, but yeah, as, Storm, as Storm tends to when her claustrophobia is triggered, she has her powers sort of blow up everywhere and basically blows up the danger room in such a fashion that somehow it goes into full hardest difficulty kill you all mode, and the console that Banshee's at stops working. So that's no good. This is what happens whenever anything goes wrong in the danger room, which is the worst safety feature ever of all time. Now, the X-Men being relatively competent superheroes managed to shut this down after a protracted battle with robots and oil slicks and stuff like that. And Storm is really upset and frustrated with what's happening. She is, during this era, really questioning a lot about her role in the X-Men, whether she really even wants to be a fighter. Yeah, now this is before all the stuff with, you know, Callisto and losing her powers. This is just Storm, who's basically used to being a goddess in Africa to helping people that way, and now she's a member of a superhero team getting in lots of fights, and that's kind of a change of pace for her, and she's not so sure she likes it. So there's this great exchange here as Cyclops comes to check in with Storm to make sure she's okay. I'll be Storm. 
Scott, have you ever questioned your being an X-Man? Is this the life you dreamed of when you were young? Not quite. I was happy in Kenya. I used my powers to help people. As an X-Man, all I ever seem to do is fight. Our skills are needed. Needed so much that we must forever deny ourselves normal lives? I, I, don't, I don't know. Even a few years down the line, that's kind of funny and sad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Scott also tells Aurora that she shouldn't bottle up her feelings, which it's like, dude, Irony. pot kettle. Yeah, uh, I love the. Fr I actually really love the visual framing for this conversation. And we should say, if you're not familiar, so we didn't have this together in time to put up slides as we were recording, but we put up a visual companion with every episode. And I love this sequence because they're having this conversation as Storm is taking down her hair after the fight, and as Cyclops is switching from his visor to his glasses. And um, one of the, the ongoing challenges for comics artists, and especially comics artists who focus a lot of, on action and in genres that are, are really action-focused like superheroes, is making the staging of conversations interesting and making a compelling narrative. And this sequence, I think, just does a really singularly good job of that. Yeah, the, the body language is great. Like, just how tightly Scott is squinting his eyes shut when he's between visor and glasses because, you know, that's... That's what he has to deal with every moment of every day. But that also it's just the very matter-of-fact background to the conversation about their lives and being normal people versus superheroes. It's a very, very good visual counterpoint to the dialogue. Totally. Um, now, they don't really get to be normal people for long. Storm heads upstairs to water her plants, but no sooner is she up there than she is attacked by good old Archon. This actually reminded me a lot of what we covered in a recent episode, this uh, villain that showed up in another annual horde who just shows up out of nowhere and beats the hell out of the X-Men. And, and is, just yells. Is, 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 and just yells a lot. He's very... Uh, well, Archon doesn't beat up the X-Men. They, they pretty much beat him up. Well, he, he does start to attempt to attack Storm. However, he does not realize that Aurora Monroe is Aurora Monroe. So the next time we see Archon is with him being slammed through the ceiling of the uh, floor below. And landing in the swimming pool. Uh, well, no, they, they punch him out into the swimming right, pool. Right, right. Um, um, and Cyclops recognizes him. And I love this because he recognizes him not from, like, superhero files, because Jarvis knows him from the Avengers files, but because he saw him on TV once. So all of that TV watching you've been doing, it could save your friends' lives. Yes. So you just keep watching television just in case. Yes, and then, and then Archon, Archon is astonished that Storm wasn't just waiting to be kidnapped. So we get him, you know, regarding Cyclops... Oh, no, I love this part, especially when he first encounters Colossus. Another super-powered youth? By the gods, I've stumbled into a nest of them. Man, I, that's such a tick line. Yeah, we, after this line, we kept uh, picturing, or rather hearing, Archon yeah. in our heads as like Patrick Warburton from the Tick Live action series, which makes this issue way better. So you better. should do the same. Yes, we recommend it. Yeah, so the X-Men pretty much kick Archon's ass. And I did, did we mention that we swear sometimes? We swear sometimes. We're sorry. We're not actually very sorry, but we'll, we'll try not to. So yes. the, the X-Men effectively take down Archon, um, and he's throwing lightning bolts. He's got two kinds of lightning bolts in his quiver. Three. Three? Yeah, he's got yellow he's got... and black and red. I don't know what the difference is between the black and red, except that you don't want to be hit by them because they will blow you up or kill you or disintegrate you. The yellow ones, on the other hand, he finally throws one of them at Storm, and she just straight up disappears. And the X-Men, okay, there, so there are two things I want to talk here. One is the X-Men's emotional reaction, because I love the way it's narrated. But the first is these lightning bolts, because, okay, barbarian prince type dude, cool, uh, quiver full of lightning bolts, K, but the lightning bolts look like, they look like they're made out of poster board, they or maybe really like do. science fair board. Yeah, they look like part of somebody's, like, Zeus costume. Or yeah. storm costume, like the kind of lightning bolt that you would have to brandish as a prop. Well, I, I just kept They're going so back. They're so not impressive. I kept going back to the science fair thing, and I'm like, wait, is this guy just like studying the effects of Polemician precipitation on pea shoots or something? Does he have like a hypothesis and a conclusion, and he gets a participation prize? Yeah, he's eventually just going to glue them all to a backboard. I love this no, plan. It's great, though, too, because they've got this dorky quiver that looks like a gun holster. And um, he's got it now, and it sort of goes with his outfit. But late, like in much later annuals, the X-Men have it. 
And it just, it doesn't go with anything, ever. A lot of the time you'll see Cyclops with his blue outfit with that. It looks so dumb. It's great. Cyclops is very good at looking dorky, and I say this with wonderful, full affection. Yeah, that's because he has a costume that doesn't go with anything. It's true. Man. Which, is, which, which makes any prop that he carries fundamentally hilarious. Little black dress, Scott, goes with everything. Uh, be a much better substitute. So, but yeah, so the narration. Okay, so one of the other things that I really love about Claremont is his narration. Because his <laughs> prose is very purple. It's very over-the-top and intense it's, and emotional. It's so far into purple that it's like through to indigo. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, when Storm disappears, presumably she's been killed. The X-Men have no way of knowing that she has, in fact, been teleported to Polemicus. Because that tends not to happen very often in their day-to-day. It is as if a great yawning pit has suddenly opened in five hearts. This terrifying turn of events numbs their souls with a grief that transcends pain and fills their bodies with a rage that defies description. Like, X-Men. damn, Claremont. Um, and similarly, you know, we, one of the things Claremont is known for is certain quotes he just keeps coming back to, certain combinations of words. And so Colossus, who's normally a very peaceful dude, turns to Archon and says, We have done you no harm, Butcher, yet you attacked without warning, slew without mercy. As you have done to us, so shall the X-Men do to you. So this is interesting to me. Like, the X-Men don't generally threaten to kill people, and they definitely don't generally kill... And I think, well, not in this area, yeah. Well, if I'm not mistaken, actually, Colossus is going to be the first one of them to cross that line, and he's going to do it in the story arc that follows this annual. That immediately follows it. That's the, the Proteus, Proteus saga. saga. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I think he kills somebody else in the Mutant Massacre. That's he Arclight. He does, yes. And... I, Harpoon, maybe? Arclight. Oh, no, Arclight, you're right. Oh, wait, no, not Arclight. Uh, the, the spinny dude. Riptide. Riptide, there we there go. There are so many Marauders. There are a and lot, And some guys. of them have clones, so, you know. They all have clones, actually. Oh, they, they do, yeah, at this point. Sinister! Um, so, um, finally, the X-Men manage to subdue Archon. Uh, Colossus smashes a very large tree over his head, and um, Archon refuses to explain why he's there. Like, he's come to get help, but he won't ask for it. Like, he just keeps attacking. And this reminds me so much, um, has anyone read Starman? The James Robinson run in the 90s? Yes. It's really good. Yes. It's really, yes. Um, I, it's my so first So my favorite Starman story is about this Hawaiian shirt that's a gateway to heaven, which, uh, which sentence should give you a pretty good... Like, if, if, if you think that sounds cool, then you should read Starman, and if not, then it's probably not the book for you. Um, but it, the, the main character runs an, runs an antique shop, and a couple characters break in, like, trying to steal something from him, and he just fights them off and fights them off and fights them off, and finally finds out what they're after, and is like, you know, you could have just co- come in and bought it. And so they're like, oh, well, okay, here, and they, here you yeah, go. And they give him 50 bucks, and he gives them the shirt, and they go their separate ways. It's, it's really great. And I feel like this is kind of a similar premise. The premise, like, Archon could probably have, like, knocked on the front door and asked politely, and it would have gone come out okay. to play. And, see, and I love the way he's just refusing to talk, though. Like, he's like, he he's like a, a little oh, kid who yeah. doesn't want to eat. He's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. And, and Storm's like, here comes the exposition airplane. Open up. He's like, mm-mm. Doesn't work. Finally, the X-Men figure out, or they come to the conclusion really shakily. Again, from something Cyclops saw on television. <laughs> that the yellow bolts will teleport people to Archon's world, and that's probably what's happened to Storm. So they just throw down a bunch to see what happens. And in fact, they end up basically in Mongo from Flash Gordon. Seriously, like, everything that takes place on Polemicus needs a Queen soundtrack. We don't have one with us, but whatever your favorite Queen songs are, I would like you to imagine them as we're going through the rest of this issue. They can also be the Proto Men Queen covers. That works too. That's what I was listening to when we were writing this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, this place, it's, it's, it's super Flash Gordon. It's so Flash It's like Gordon. really opulent and there are oh all these God. people wearing uh, more capes than pants and like these sort of Really grinning... fancy collars. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful place. I would want to go there if yeah, everything else Yeah, it's seriously about... basically the Court of Ming. It's terrific. Yeah, and, and so they show up and 
they waste no time in Cyclops saying, all right, we've got your buddy Archon. We know he's your Empyrean because of that show I watched on TV that one time. So we will trade his life for that of Storm. And so of course I'm bluffing because I don't Empyrean? kill Because, I mean, my first contact with Archon was in the animated series episode about him where he's a somewhat different character. And there he's the ruler of the planet, but here he's not. What, what, well, what's no, his, so what is his job? An Empyrean, it's not the ruler of the whole planet. It's like a regional leader. So he's kind of like a, like a mayor. A mayor. Yeah, like a, you know, like an action, a fighty mayor. Are you trying to work this up to like a Final Fight reference? Uh, okay, yeah. So mayor, Mike Hagar, the mayor of America, a man of burning vigor, according to my favorite bad translation. So you can just imagine Archon going around and like punching barrels and walking over turkeys that are in them. Would you say that he is perhaps truly a man with a man's courage? I, in fact, would say exactly that. Flash. Uh, right. So, yes, um, and Archon is basically like, no, it's not worth it. Storm is uh, important to our planet's survival. And this is the first we've heard about this. Archon's been mumbling about, you know, hating having to beg, and I guess kidnapping someone is his equivalent of begging. And so Clemens the entire... Is awful. It is. So the entire Imperial Court of effectively wingless Hawkmen... Yeah, uh, like, uh, it's, it's got everything but Brian Blessed. Alas, because Brian Blessed should be in everything, including comic books. He totally should. So he actually, supposedly, he was almost the guy who played Odin before they got Anthony Hopkins in the Thor movie. Oh my, that would have been a very different Odin, but I think it would it would have been the best Odin. Just I would have had Brian yeah. Blessed as Volstagg, personally. I would have Brian Blessed as everyone. 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 Everyone, everyone is Brian Blessed. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was like an Eddie Murphy movie. But only in that way. But Brian Blessed, and he'd have the—he'd just be Brian Blessed, like he'd have the beard and everything, and I'm the grin. Favor. The grin is really essential. Ah! Yeah. So uh, he uh, basically Archon and the Warlord, who's actually even more Brian Blessed looking, um, sick the entire uh, Polemician army on the X Men, and there's a great big fight, which is awesome, and which uh, George Perez draws beautifully. Yeah, Perez does a lot. You know, I mentioned him being really good in the the, the more talky scenes. His fight scene choreography is fantastic, and one of the things he does a lot here is play a whole bunch with perspective and framing when you've got a lot of small panels and a big chaotic fight scene, because it's hard to make those fights make sense when you've got, you know, 50 people fighting, um, and only a few of them as recognizable characters, but he does an amazing job playing with perspective and just emphasizing the tumult and the the scale of the thing, and it works really well. Now, not all of the X-Men are fighting. They managed to make their way at least partway out, but the vizier has split. He's headed off somewhere else. And this is the beardy dude whose head talked to Archon before. Right, and Nightcrawler um, goes off to follow him in hopes that he can lead him to Storm. One of the things I like is that the Grand Vizier is riding this big purple cat who I'm pretty sure they just stole directly from Skeletor or maybe is just on loan or something. I like the idea that like, actually the, the people from this planet just literally stole Skeletor's cat. It could be. I think they stole, they, all, they stole all the furry underwear from He-Man as well, so it kind of oh follows, God. right? This okay. Is, yeah. I, like, I love the idea, actually, because Marvel had the He-Man license for a while, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I love the idea of comics being like movies and recycling set pieces and costumes. <laughs> that is an awesome idea. <laughs> I, th I think that's exactly what they did. Speaking of which, um, Nightcrawler successfully follows this dude to Storm. He succeeded on a stealth check. And Storm, you know. who has gone through her own gratuitous costumes change, and man, she is wearing an amazing outfit. It's like this plate mail... The scale male scale bathing man. suit with like a, an awesome headdress and a half cape that matches her flowing loincloth. He's like, kind of got like facial buttresses. Yeah, Shatterstar would be proud. And she is apparently there voluntarily. She's saying, you know, I'll do this. This is worth it. I want to save the planet even at the cost of my own life. And Nightcrawler doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, this on. is a new spin on events. Yeah, so he's like, uh, I'm not sure what's happening, so I'm just going to take Storm's discarded cape and put it over her head to freak her out. And then she will zap her lightning because of her claustrophobia, and it'll signal the other X-Men. All I can think of, so, like, the way he does it, we used to have this dog who would get really freaked out by people, like, when we were in the car, if, like, there were people from outside the car interacting with us, the dog would flip the hell out. 
And so on road trips, someone had to be sitting in the back seat and be ready to just like throw a towel over the dog's head and sort of hug it <laughs> every time we went to a toilet. I'm just imagining Storm like, like, like the exact at same all the gesture. Yap, 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 yap. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, um, this works. And I can just see Storm like, oh God, I wish I'd never told the X-Men about my claustrophobia. Right. Oh, this keeps happening. Every damn time. Uh, oh. So the other X-Men who are in the midst of battle fighting like a giant golden space tank because Polemicus is awesome. I mean, don't live there, but it's awesome. Flash. Uh, yes. Uh, they're like, oh, well, there's that lightning over there very far away. How, How do we get, we there, get there If only Colossus would just show up riding a freaking dragon for no reason. And so he does. And there's like this heroic <laughs> shot of Colossus on a big green dragon. Like, okay, I love everything about this issue now. Thank you, issue, for, for being a friend. He's one of the rare dragons in a Marvel annual who's not some kind of analog for Lockheed. It's just a random dragon. It's just a random dragon. Yeah. Well, Kitty's not here yet, so Lockheed's yeah, not here still. yet. And so they fly over there very quickly and confront Storm, who's sort of in the air doing some kind of magic weather manipulation thingum in her awesome outfit. And they're like, hey, you gotta come with us. And she says, no, I cannot. There's no time to explain. But, but they do anyway. Um, uh, Archon finally explains what's going on. So the deal is this. Remember how Polemicus had that ring of energy around it instead of a sun? The energy's going out because Iron Man's machine has broken. Why did um, I just think of the Johnny Cash Ring of Fire song? We should have made references to that from the start. No. I apologize, listeners. This is our failing. But no. you can retroactively insert those. I... But Flash Gordon. Well, that's true. That's a better theme. We'll go this with is, that this theme. Is, this is Queen. This is not Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, like, that's Wolverine solo stuff is Johnny Cash. Excellent this is, point. This is, this is a Queen annual. <laughs> Hands down. There, you, you can actually define X-Men genres by style of music pretty well. So the machine stopped working, so they have to massively, massively recharge it. And, the machine um, that Tony Stark made that Thor charged. And Archon's like, yeah, maybe I should have just asked, but that is not an Empyrean's way. And, and so I, I, I'm just imagining, like, is this how everything works on Polemicus? Like, you go to a fast food restaurant, and instead of saying, may I help you, they're like, choose your meal or die. Or like if you're in a computer, instead of a help menu, it's, it's just demand answers from the week. I, I love this plan. Click. That would take up more and screen And it's just the same list. <laughs> yeah, so topics. Polemicus is basically just really angry all the time. They're, they're kind of Klingons if Klingons didn't have wrinkly foreheads and wore more capes than pants. So here's something that actually occurred to me as I was reading this, and unfortunately I didn't have time to ask, but this premise reminds me so much of Greg Pak's arc on Astonishing X-Men, which is pretty similar. It's, the one where the X-Men all have to like sacrifice their energies to save a dying planet. Well, where there's an Xavier whose planet is, is off, um, off of its, its axis and the way he powers the machines that keep it running are to kidnap X-Men from other dimensions and basically burn through all of their energy. And there's, you know, he's, he's gone through zillions of them. And this is actually the series that jump-started then Pac's run um, of Extreme X-Men, which is fantastic and which you should all read if you haven't. It's, it's really good dimension-hopping adventures. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, Greg Pack aside for the moment, we'll come back to him in later episodes a lot. Um, yeah, he's terrific. So Cyclops is like, wait, no, I got this. Check out my awesome plan. So there's this machine, right, that has to be charged with lightning and that ignites the, uh, the rings. And Thor could do it because he's, you know, a god. So, okay. Storm, however, it's gonna kill if she tries because she is a mere mortal. So how can we do this? All right, Wolverine and Nightcrawler. What I need you to do is take this immensely advanced technology made by the smartest mind in the Marvel Universe, arguably. No, Reed Richards. There's actually an official ranking. Okay, like one of the top five minds in the Marvel Universe in there with Amadeus Cho and Richards. Mm, or and so. That fool Richards. I gotta say it Doom style. That fool Richards. And I want you to use your incredibly rudimentary knowledge of technology to reprogram it to accept optic blasts instead of electricity. This is like the equivalent of when you go... Well, my nephew helped me put Mort Norton antivirus on my computer. Yeah, I'll get him to, like, 
program the new defense software. That's cool, right? You know computers, don't you? Right. And I mean, Wolverine, like, specifically, is, is, he's as skeptical as we are. Like, beautiful, if this sucker blows up in your face, Summers, don't say I didn't warn you. Man, I love Wolverine in this, because, you know, later on, there's this Nightcrawler being like, whoever built this was a genius. Oh, right, and he, oh man, you went to the next page. And yeah. Wolverine's like, oh yeah, if he was so hot, how come it broke? Like, Wolverine is just, he's a jerk <laughs> who likes fighting. That's most of his personality at this point, and I love that. He's started to develop a distinct personality, actually in the arc that immediately precedes this. But, oh yeah, um, when the X-Men are coming yeah, back Yeah, but from... he's, he's not quite there yet. He's still kind of semi-formed Wolverine. Um, so what they figure out is Colossus is going to hold on to Storm to ground her because he's, he's metal. And also because every um, character has to be involved in a plan to make it an awesome plan, and I fully support that. And then Cyclops is going to absorb Storm's lightning and focus and redirect it through his optic blasts. So this is a continuity point that's worth touching on because powers in the Marvel Universe, and especially mutant powers, are wildly inconsistent, and Cyclopses are among the least consistent. At this point, nominally, they work by absorbing, metabolizing, and refocusing sunlight. And this is the first place where it's suggested that he can actually absorb other types of energy. Um, I think what they say here is that it's... Um, oh, wait, it's, I, this is a good Claremont narration. I got yeah. this. But Cyclops' system is genetically geared to absorb solar energy, not lightning. It's like a high-performance engine primed for high-octane premium gas, suddenly forced to run on low-octane regular. It runs rough. It may even explode. The same holds for Cyclops. Spoiler, he does not actually explode because it's, you know, there's, there's another issue after Surprise! This, right? Whoa! Um, exploded. So this is, and this is, again, this is a big thing continuity-wise because how those powers work, it's wildly inconsistent and you don't often have things like this established this clearly canonically and then, you know, massively changed three weeks later. But, yeah. Um, so, so we have some more, some more narration about how this goes. Claremont, like... <laughs> It's not that he doesn't rely on his artist to be awesome. He's just like, well, the art can be awesome, but why shouldn't the narration be awesome in parallel? And then there'll be two awesomes, and two is better than one, right? When this works, they augment each other really beautifully. When it doesn't work, the narration is just a more detailed description of what's happening in the panels. And I wonder, based on this issue and based on the footnotes in it, especially the ones that are saying, you know, no, no, this takes place before issues that have already come out whether there was some kind of, some degree of rush involved in this. And it was, because it gives that impression. Like, it's not nearly as as edited or precisely put together as a lot of the contemporary material is. Thankfully, it's got enough awesome to make up for that. Yeah, but I feel like we should, we, should, we should go through this narration. Since we don't have our visuals, we can just rely on Claremont. <laughs> Do you want to take a turn Claremonting? All right. It's said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. If so, what does that say of the soul of Scott Summers? As beams of pure white light, leached of all its normal ruby color by the awesome power it manifests, crosses the few feet of space separating Cyclops from the device, establishing the final link in this arcane circuit. Storm calls down more lightning, greater and greater bolts, the energy flowing from her to Cyclops, from him to the machine, until flesh and bone and steel and stone can stand no more. Fortunately, however, that's sufficient. The ring comes back to life. The planet is saved. Yeah. So, uh, well, well done, Cyclops. Your, your laser's turned white, just like the sort of truth when it's forgiving someone. He's a miracle. Huh. Uh, and Yes, he is I'm a miracle. Just, I'm just going to keep... I'm, He'll I'm, save every one of us. Yeah. Um, and so the mountain explodes, even though the rings have been reignited. And so the warlord and the grand vizier are like, oh, crap, our dudes are dead. Nah, it's cool. Everyone's alive. It turns out everyone's... It's a everyone's comic. <laughs> just this once, everybody lives. No, no, dude. This is a, like a superhero comic in the late 70s. Pretty much everyone lives pretty much all the time. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like this big heap of wreckage. It's a mountain-sized heap of wreckage with just like arms and legs sticking out at random. They're but good though. It's okay. They're, they're really tough. It turns out. I assume out. the mountain was just like big styrofoam rocks. 
Oh, like the aggro crag? Yes, exactly like the aggro crag. Sweet. I always wanted a piece of that, but I was wow. never allowed to get I feel like there's, there, there are going to be like six people who are exactly our age who get that reference, and everyone else is <laughs> like, what the hell is wrong with you? So anyway, <laughs> they all head back for some, some victory feasting like you do, and also some victory sweet science fiction Ming's court in Mongo outfits. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of flesh is being bared here. It's not as good as the uh, flesh-bearing outfits from the Coconut Grove in the Fallen Angels miniseries, but still pretty good. It's George also, Perez. also not, good, not as good as the Octopus Heim outfits. But, um, the what, Octopus what? Heim outfits Man, are the greatest Wolverine outfits ever. looks kind of like the bassist from Spinal Tap. He totally does! <laughs> Which I can strangely see really easily, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just him getting awkwardly stuck in like the cocoon thing on stage. Oh I God. love it. Now I just yes. want to see him with one of those cop stashes. Oh, I feel like the X-Men, like the, the sort of kludgy, we're, we're, we're trying, we're trying a thing. Yes. Like, man, I, now I really want to see some kind of like cross-casting art. I like this plan. Anyway, yes, uh, Archon, you know, thanks them, of course, in his and arrogant way. And asks them if they want to stay and help him conquer the universe, because they'd probably be really good at it. And they're like, no, no, it's cool. You got this, bro. We're going to go and get a pizza. Man, X-Men could have gone in such a different direction. So it's like, totally instead of Instead have. of the Proteus Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga, they could have just been like, screw this. We're going to go become space barbarians. Right. And uh, so, and I love the little bit, like, it seems almost sitcom-y at the very end with, like, the thing where everyone just sort of laughs as the credits come on. Yeah. Um, because Storm is like after they demure, uh, Storm says, oh, I don't know, Scott. Wouldn't you like to be the first barbarian to wear horn-rimmed glasses? So here's the thing. Cyclops doesn't actually wear horn-rimmed glasses, like, at that point anyway. Well, okay, so it's like Storm's like, all right, I've been thinking about the problems in your life, Scott, and I have two suggestions. (laughs) One, conquer the universe. Two, horn-rimmed glasses. I think they'd look good. She's like his his fashion guru and, and his life coach. So um, Archon sends them back home with his yellow bolts, and apparently they keep them. It's not touched on here, but they've got these guys much later. They use them to get to Asgard um, in a two-part annual years, years, years later. Well, then they also use them two years from now in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5, where they go back to Polemicus with a Fantastic Four to fight the Madoon. I love that these lightning bolts only seem to exist in annuals. I, I agree. Like, you know, okay, well, it's an annual day. All right, unlock the annual cabinet. Huh, there's a quiver it's full like of lightning China. bolts. Are these lightning bolts made of poster board? Like, no, no, don't, don't use those. We can use the hand-wash-only wine glasses this time. It's an annual. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, that is Uncanny X-Men Annual, or X-Men Annual, or X-Men King Size, whatever. Number three, um, like we said, in number five, two years later, we're going to get more polemicous stuff. Not as good of an issue, but still enjoyable. There are invisible lizard men, just like I'm told are in the U.S. government, apparently, I heard. I don't know. And um, also, Archon and Storm get all romantical. Um, and I believe that is actually the first, or one of the first mentions of Storm's romantic history with Black Panther, which obviously later became a much bigger deal. And, you know, a marriage. Yes. There's also an episode of X-Men the Animated Series that's based loosely on this annual and another one, unfortunately titled Stormfront. Yeah. Questionable name. Yeah, the rest uh, of you can look it up when you get home. But it's um, an enjoyable episode, and you should watch it in Arcana Silly, and I like his tiny pants. Yeah, it's um, fun. Um, yeah, the animated series takes him in such a different direction. It does. It sort of merges these together and then makes it its own thing. But, so that is X-Men Annual number three. And as you know, if you listen to the show, one of the things that we do is answer questions. And I assume if you're here and you read X-Men, you've got some. Um, we have... Wonderful, wonderful con volunteers who have microphones. Like we said, we're recording this. If you've got a question, raise your hand. They will come find you. Now, our caveat is for super complex continuity stuff, we don't have Dr. Internet here with us, so we'll yeah. do what we can. But. We're research monsters. When we answer questions on the podcast, they're ones people have sent in, and we take them and we research the answers. So we will try. If you have a continuity question we can't answer, we will look it up, and we'll write you an answer. We'll post it on the blog yes. in the next week. So, so. well, given that... Uh, that John Byrne, did, who's a famous X-Men artist, uh, ended up doing some fill-in strips for Funky Winkerbean. Oh, uh, really? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> and later also Crankshaft, if you know that strip. Yeah, well, they're, they're, <laughs> uh, they're in a shared universe. Th- yes, I was wondering if 
Funky Winker Bee uh, joined the X group. Which would be the most appropriate X-Men, you know, based book? New Mutants, X Factor. Where would Winker Bean's power oh, of depression man. fit the best? Okay, oh, well, now in terms of just the darkest of the dark, I'm going to go ahead and say no, my answer. It's, it's got to be something sort of sitcommy. Well, I think if you did a mix of different X-Factors, because the mm. early Louis Simonson, Bob Layton X-Factor, everything is terrible for everybody, so that would fit there. But later on, like X-Factor Investigations feels kind of like TV procedural sitcom also. So I'm going to say he's just going to be the one constant through X-Factor from like the very first issue to, uh, to the end of Peter David's most recent run. That's I am, my answer. I am actually going to say X-Force. Really? I am. Because, first of all, I think that he would be hilariously incongruous in early X-Force. And I think in later, like, Remender X-Force, oh, when everything is actually super bleak, but it's super bleak with characters like Phantom X and Deadpool. Okay. I think it would, it, I think it would, I think it would be interesting. I think he would be, if not, a good, if not necessarily a good addition to the dynamic, sufficiently short-lived to not divert the comic significantly. So there you go. Canon. Canon. Yes. The oh. answer is Funky Winkerbean should be in the X-Men team in which he will most quickly die in space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who's next? Hey, so I have a very easy question. Who is your favorite terrible X-Men? Oh, terrible, terrible X-Men. Um, oh, man. Well, you're so going to have to expand on your standard for terrible. Like, do you mean powers or personality or? Uh, powers and or campiness. Oh, man. Camping, oh, campiness kind of raises the bar. Okay, well, if we're talking powers, I'm actually going to have to go with a character I will endlessly defend, that being Maggot. Maggot was rad. He had his, so his mutant power is that he's got these two like big grubs that are his digestive system, which is about as weird and gross as it sounds. But think about it. Like, okay, if mutants were real, if science somehow twisted itself enough, enough to make that make any sense at all, like, you wouldn't necessarily have eye lasers or, like, a sweet healing factor or the ability to control the weather. You'd have a bunch of weird stuff going on. Right. And so that is a really weird power that could just sort of randomly happen, okay. And, like, his personality, he's, he's relatively chill with it, and I respect that about Maggot. And it makes me sad that he was so despised by fans and ended up getting, getting killed by terrible anti-mutant people and nobody really ever comments on it again so maggot bring him back <laughs> give him his own solo title it turns out he had the phoenix seed inside of him he's resurrected oh, he's got cosmic doesn't? power that's true a lot of people do that's my all right so one of my like top five all-time favorite x-men is one who shows up on every worst x-men ever list and that is cypher doug ramsey who has objectively the most useful power it's just that he's stuck in the wrong genre. Yeah, he can, he can comprehend any language, even like stuff like body language. That's huge. Yeah, I will, I will go to the mat for Cypher every time. Yes. Poor, poor dead Doug. That's he's okay. back. He got better, yeah. He's sort of. Yeah, they always get better. Um, okay, uh, other yes. questions? Who's next? So I love X-Force. So I was wondering which um, X-Force team uh, do you prefer? Oh, man, that's a good mm -hmm. one. So... We both have external biases here. We were both huge, huge, huge New Mutants fans. And I think both of us kind of fundamentally resented the first X-Force series for not being New Mutants and for feeling like it killed a lot of the New Mutants that we loved. I'm really looking forward to going back to that with slightly more perspective because a lot of people who, whose work I really love and respect 
really love that series and, and look to it as a lot of the source. Like people who I have, who are, are commentators and journalists and comics creators who I really like, go back to that as their core X-Men series. So I'm looking forward to looking back at it. But for me, my very, very, very favorite X, um, X-Force is, is Remender's um, recent run. Or, or Dennis Hopeless's Cable at X-Force. Like they're, they're two mm. series that, that very much sort of, um, one, one bleeds into the other. Or Side Spurrier's got any X-Force of the last, like, seven years. Yeah, it's been surprisingly good. Those three series good. are all so good. They're all so different, too. If I had to pick a favorite, I would say Side Spurrier's X-Force, just because it really examines, I guess, the nature of violence and the people who do it. Yeah. And yeah, it does take characters it in very strange directions. It comes kind of beautifully full circle to the, the old kind of just, like, explosively violent... Yeah. rebellious X-Force. It's also cool. hilarious, which I, I always approve of. And as nobody writes uh, Dr. Nemesis like Cy Spurrier. Uh, nobody wait, else was, should ever be allowed to write Dr. Nemesis. Yeah, Dennis Hopeless does a pretty Dennis good Hopeless job. did a really good Dr. Yeah. Nemesis. No, and uh, Phantom X is, is really great in that as well. Uh, so is mm-hmm. Hope. So is um, Marrow, even if her personality is different. It, it also introduces Forget-Me-Not, who is one of the greatest weird... Whose who's, who's mutant power is effectively being a retcon. Yes. Which is terrific. Um... So I think I, we have... I'm going to have to stick with Remender, I think, mm-hmm. for one reason, which is that it actually like made me cry, which is Legit. really, really hard for comics to do. And it made me cry, and it felt like it had really earned it. Totally. Like the Dark Angel saga just wrecked me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have time for one more question. If someone would like to finish us out with a bang or a yes. whimper, you can finish us out with anything. It's fine. We need a tiny squirrel girl. I feel like that, that's raised the bar for us. We life. were really lucky at oh Rose City God. because uh, our first and last questions were both by tiny, adorable children. In and tiny, adorable costumes. And, and the, yeah, that was, oh, that was amazing. You are, you are all adorable too, by the way. Yes. And, and amazing. In, um, in your own special ways. If you, yes. If you're not squirrel girl. Um, so, okay. Well, if there aren't any more, then uh, just thank you guys so much for, for coming here and seeing us live. Yes. It's always really cool to put a face to the, to the people who listen to us. And, yeah, um, and thank you, you so all much rad. to Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest for bringing us out. Um, this, is, this is the first non-Portland show that we've ever been guests at, and it's been really amazing already. And we're going we're gonna to be here for the rest of the day. We are tabling right outside at table, I think, 39. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got scenes and stuff, so I guess, do you want to... Let's, oh, let's do we our... Should, we should say one, one quick promo thing. Um, so we are in the dead middle of something called the Secret Convergence on Infinite podcast. Or Scoipe, for short. It's fun to say. I recommend um, it. A question we get a lot from folks is, if, we li- if I like your podcasts and want more comics podcasts, what should I listen to? So Secret Convergence is an amazing sampler of comics podcasts. It is us and eight other comics podcasts. We decided, you know... Wouldn't it be fun to do a massively bloated crossover event, just like the medium we cover? And so we did. Yes. And um, I think we're, we're covers. three episodes into that, three or four episodes in. Ours is the last one. Each one involves a, a, is, is an episode of, of the show it's on, hosted by that show, but with like three or four other people on it. Um, you can find that on Twitter at SCOI Podcasts or on Tumblr at secretconvergence.tumblr.com. Greg Rucka does the voice of the Beyonder. Um, it is, yeah, it's, 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 it was, it's been a huge amount of fun and everyone should check it out because also like a lot of these shows are super, super, super amazing and we cannot recommend them highly enough. Uh, so with that, we shall do our uh, traditional ritualistic outro. So normally, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. This week, however, we have been recording live from Las Vegas at the Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival with audio and production by the fantastic volunteers here.
Yes, thank you guys. You are awesome. Uh, and new episodes of our show come out on Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. You can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much, much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and that's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. So if anyone would like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, things fall apart in X-Factor. More. Again. As we meet Apocalypse's blade-winged horsemen of death. Cameron Hodge goes full supervillain, complete with awesomely stupid armor. And Boom Boom gets to save the day. Sort of. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for coming.